I'm going to begin reading in verse number 31, Matthew chapter number 5, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 31. I'm going to go to verse number 37, and I need my glasses, otherwise I cannot see the pages of Scripture. That's a sad thing about getting older. Oh, thank you, brother. Appreciate the good reminders. Amen. It's always good to have a fellow preacher in the audience, I'll tell you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, the Bible says, If it hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by the head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. We began a study several weeks ago on this sermon that Jesus preached, which we often call the Sermon on the Mount. I was able to take four weeks right in the very beginning. We went through the Beatitudes here, verses 3 through 12. And what a joy it was to be able to look at those wonderful truths the last two weeks, and I'm very grateful for the staff that we have and, and uh, the pastoral staff and their job in opening up the Scriptures. we continued this series. You had opportunity to look at the type of influence that we ought to have in this world as well as the insight to the sins that are in the heart. I was spoken about last week, anger and adultery. But today we come to a passage that I honestly wish I could skip over. You know, that's the problem with preaching through a book or a section of Scripture is that you come to maybe a distasteful portion of Scripture or a portion that you may need to really study out and you say, it'd be nice to skip that over. In fact, I wish that uh, I had arranged this in such a way that this could be preached while I was away. But it didn't work out that way. Half of our sermon today will deal with the subject of marriage and divorce. When I preached on the marriage and family a few months ago, when we had our family series, it certainly stirred a number of people. There are some here today who have been divorced, and these type of messages are like peeling scabs off of old wounds. To others who are in a troubled marriage, some, not every one of them, may often act in a fleshly manner because They don't want to hear the truth of God's Word. In other words, instead of relying upon the message of grace which we find in the Word of God, we would rather listen to the rest of society and its philosophy to do what makes you happy. So as you might imagine, I enter preaching this message with fear and trepidation. To be honest, there's a dilemma that I have and I want to share that with you. How do I today honor and esteem marriage without dishonoring and denigrating those who have experienced divorce? 
How do I encourage divorced people without appearing to minimize the importance of honoring one's marital commitment and vows? You see, on one hand, if I magnify the significance of marriage and stress the importance of faithfulness to one's marital vows, divorced people, some, may feel judged and rejected and unfit for ministry and service in the church. But on the other hand, if I express compassion and love for divorced people and remind them how much God really does love them, others will think that I'm just simply glossing over the failures, that I'm contributing to the devaluation of marriage that I earlier denounced. So how do I distress here, or stress I should say, the permanence of marriage without appearing critical to those who've been divorced? How do I love and support those today who are divorced without condoning sin and failure? I suppose today that I'd like to repeat the words of the well-known theologian, not that I agreed everything with him, but John Stott, when writing on this passage, said these words. I confess to a basic reluctance to attempt an exposition of these verses. This is partly because divorce is a controversial and complex subject, but even more because it is a subject which touches people's emotions at a deep level. There is almost no unhappiness so painful as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage, and almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. Although I believe that God's way in most cases is not divorce, I hope I shall write with sensitivity, for I know the pain that many suffer, and I have no wish to add to their distress. Yet it is because I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this and every subject is good, intrinsically good, good for individuals, good for societies, that I take courage in both hands to write on. Today, this is what I really wish to convey. That whatever your emotions might be, that all of us will be convinced that what Jesus says is good for us. So with these thoughts in mind, I'd like to look closely at Jesus' words about two important subjects that revolve around promises. In fact, I've titled the message today, Promises Kept. The subjects are divorce and oaths. So allow me to speak on this, but I'd like to go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, please guide me today as I speak your word. Help me to share those things as I've studied and labored. Really, it's been over a month I've worked on this message intently. Pray that you just guide me here in this moment. Pray that people would hear from thee whatever is transpired in their own past, whatever is going on in the present, I pray that we would trust what you have for us. Thank you again for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at the first part of this passage of Scripture that I have read to you, and let's talk about keep your marriage. That's the first aspect, keep your marriage. Now, three things I'd like to give to you on this, and that is, first of all, God's intent for marriage. Now, when we read Matthew chapter 5, though we may read in the other Gospels like Mark and Luke, we 
see God's intent for marriage, we don't necessarily see God giving a full explanation of marriage and its whole purpose. But I believe if we're going to talk about divorce, it is important to discuss marriage and its purpose. In other words, it's like the old adage, before you ever tear the fence down, you better figure out why it was put there in the first place. So if we're going to talk about divorce and whether it is okay or not, then we better figure out why marriage was instituted in the first place. So the question I want to propose to you is, what is God's intent for marriage? Well, when you look through Scripture, God's intent was for man and a woman to come together for life and to be able to showcase the beautiful relationship of Christ and the church. There's no doubt as you read through the book of Corinthians, as you read through the book of Ephesians, that you find here that marriage is a wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and His relationship with us as the local church. Right from the start, God instituted marriage between one man and one woman. It was a covenant from God whereby He desires to make two people one flesh. Please understand today, though we have a lot of different laws about marriage, marriage is not simply a civil, a cultural, or a governmental contract only. It is an institution that God established, and it is for His people. And when it comes to defining marriage, we're not the ones to define it. God does, because God created it. I hate to burst your bubble, but your view of marriage, my view of marriage, is really irrelevant because God has a view of marriage, and that's the only view that really matters. John MacArthur so wisely put it when writing on the subject, God did not create a group of males and females who could pick and choose mates as it suited them. There were no spares or options. There was no provision or even possibility for multiple or alternate spouses. There were only one man and one woman in the beginning, and for that very obvious reason, divorce and remarriage was not an option. You see, God's original plan, remember, this is before sin entered into the world, God's original plan was for marriage to be a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. Now, that's the intent, really, of the Scripture as it unfolds with regards to marriage But now I want to get into the passage, and I want you to notice here, number two, the Pharisees' interpretation of divorce. So Jesus tackles this subject of marriage and divorce. He comes at it head on and simply makes a statement about what has been so commonly accepted. And with that, I come to the problem. You see, if you and I today have any confusion about the subject of divorce... It's not because God has given us a blurry picture in the Bible. This is only because, the blurry picture that is, because sin has entered the world, and that has confused the simplicity of what God has given to us. God's very clear. He's very clear about the issue of divorce, but sin has muddied the waters. And so, in fact, Jesus was asked one time in his ministry whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And in other words, they're wanting to trick Jesus. In fact, the, the, the writer of the scripture there puts in the note that these Pharisees intended to trick Jesus 
to try to cause him to fall. Jesus had a very simple answer. He told them that divorce had been put in place because of the hardness of the hearts. In other words, it was because of sin. But note here about the Pharisees and their teaching concerning divorce. Now, you say, well, preacher, it doesn't mention anything in the verses that we read about the Pharisees, so why are you implying them? Well, I want you to notice something very interesting. Look at verse number 21. These are verses you've looked at already. Look at the first phrase of verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. Now look at verse number 27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. Look at verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it had been said by them of old time. And as we walk through this, we're noting something here that Jesus is going back to what was said in the Old Testament. That phrase is repeated. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. So then he quotes an Old Testament law or an Old Testament verse. But I want you to notice in verse number 31, when Jesus said these words, look it, it hath been said. So verse 27 It's been said by them of old time. Verse number 30, uh, uh, 21, 27 has been said by them of old time. But now here in verse number 31, it hath been said. What is Jesus saying here? He was referencing what the Pharisees taught as tradition above and beyond the word of God. It hath been said. Now, when it comes to the Pharisees in Jesus' day, there were actually two particular schools of thought. And those schools of thought were based on two different rabbis. Both of these rabbis were born in the century before Jesus entered into this world. And their interpretation of divorce was based on Deuteronomy chapter 24 and one particular word, and it is the word that we have in the King James Bible, the word uncleanness. Now, the two different thoughts here were from, number one, a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Shammai. He actually had the more conservative view, and he said that uncleanness was only for sexual immorality. So therefore, if a man divorced his wife, it could only be for sexual immorality. But there was another rabbi by the name of Rabbi Hillel who held a very more liberal view, and he taught that uncleanness could refer to anything that a husband thought would be unclean to him. It could be sexual immorality. It could be if his wife brought the toast to him and she had burnt the toast, he'd say, well, you're unclean and therefore I'm going to divorce you. And amazing in the times of Jesus that this liberal view held by the rabbi Hillel was very common in the days of Jesus. In fact, this liberal view was so common and it has so affected the minds of the average people in that day that they viewed marriage more as a convenience than something that was holy before God. Now, it's one thing to talk about the intent of marriage. It's another thing to talk about what the Pharisees say. But I want to hear what Jesus said. And so Jesus' instruction now on divorce and remarriage Please note again now the beginnings of verse 31 and 32. Notice here what I emphasized a few moments ago. It hath been said. 
This is Jesus referencing here the Pharisees' tradition. But look at verse number 32, Jesus' words. But I say unto you. Well, I like that. Jesus says, let's do away with all of this tradition. Let's put all of this stuff aside. And I want to tell you what I, as the Son of God, am here to say on this particular subject. Instead of bowing to the tradition of some Pharisee, Jesus actually restricts the possibility of divorce. You see, the Pharisees, following that tradition of Rabbi Hillel, had all sorts of reasons to allow divorce. And what they did in this day is cheapen marriage. They cheapen the vow. But Jesus here states, as he brings it through, that the sin of unfaithfulness in marriage destroys that marriage covenant and can make divorce allowable. This is what often is referred to, you might see, maybe in writings, as the exception clause. Jesus here gives an allowance for sexual immorality. Now, there's questions that often are asked in regards to this particular passage. For instance, people often say when reading this, well, preacher, doesn't God hate divorce? Yes, God hates divorce. Malachi makes it very clear. He hates what it does to his creation of marriage, what it does to children that are affected, what it does to the two people that are involved in the breakup. But it must be understood that when we read this passage of Scripture here, that this is an allowance, if you will, not a commandment. Jesus is not coming and saying, well, I'm just giving a carte blanche permission for you to just go ahead and get divorced. No, I want to tell you something. One thing that I have done as a pastor, as best as I can when I counsel people who are going through marriage struggles, is emphasize the very grace of God. My friend, I want to tell you something. That very grace that could save you as a sinner, as a hell-bound sinner, a man or a woman who defied God, who went his own way, lived the way he wanted to live. If the grace of God is powerful enough to save you, the grace of God is powerful enough to help you live the Christian life. And so therefore, I don't come to this passage whenever I hear of an issue of immorality and say, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you just go ahead and divorce? But Jesus does give, if you will, an allowance, not necessarily a commandment. Another question that comes out is, why didn't God simply prohibit all divorce? Well, sin has affected this world. He permits divorce not because marriage is meaningless, but because human hearts are so hard and sinful. Now, the greater question is probably this, Pastor, what do I do if I'm divorced? What do I do if I'm divorced and remarried? Well, according to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you are best now to stay right where you are. If you haven't done so, I would encourage you to ask God's forgiveness for this uh, uh, breakdown of a relationship and then begin to move on for the glory of God. How sad it is for me to see many divorced people who view themselves as second-class citizens. I can tell you right off the bat here that I, as a pastor, do not look at this audience and say, well, that one's divorced, that one's married, and that one's, you know, I don't look at it that way. I don't want to look at people as as different because every one of us in this room have had some failures of some degree or another. 
And therefore, all of us stand here in need of God's grace. And we're here to seek God's forgiveness for the wrongs in our life and to move forward for the very glory of God. So I want to encourage you here today, as we wrap things up in this message, to think through the importance and the value of marriage, and which, which is what Jesus did. Sometimes people want to come to this passage and just emphasize, well, this is the permissive part of what I can do. No, no. What Jesus was doing in the context is Jesus was taking all of these views of marriage and saying, look, let's put all this aside, and I want to tell you that marriage is important. It's valuable. Now let's move on to a second subject that Jesus deals with. And I want, to, I want to label this as keep your word. So number one, keep your marriage. But secondly, keep your word. Jesus once again begins this new section with these words, Ye have heard that it had been said of them of old time. Now the people in this day were familiar with oaths, for they were practiced in this time, and the word of God spoke about them. But let me give a little clarification on oaths, if I could. Verse number 33 kind of opens up the subject. What was an oath? Well, an oath was a promise that you would uphold what you said you would do. Since ancient times, many times in legal situations, people were required to take an oath in the name of their deity, whoever that may be, as a way to testifying of their truthfulness. The idea of all this was if you swear if you will, by what you hold as holy, and then you tell a lie, then it's very possible that your deity will surely punish you. Well, it's very interesting. This is why Jesus speaks about the Lord God concerning your oaths. When he opens this up here, he talks about performing unto the Lord thine oaths. The Bible put it this way in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, many times we share that scripture with young people about not swearing and using cuss words. And I don't mind using that verse for that. But that verse has in its context, really, this aspect of not using God's name, saying, Hey, I swear to God I'm going to do this, and then you don't uphold it. No, no, don't, don't use God's name out there flippantly. Don't throw God's name out there for your own good and then use God's name in vain. If you and I use the name of the holy God in oath, it's important that we keep it. Other words, those words are empty. It's amazing here that God himself actually made an oath and actually swore by himself. If you read in Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph was uh, talking to the Israelites about the day that they would go back to the promised land and, uh, and be there where God had promised and made an oath to Abraham. It's interesting, Hebrews, the Hebrew writer, as he's quoting this Old Testament passage, he said, God had no one greater to swear by than himself, his own name. God said... I'm making this oath with Abraham. And I'm making this oath and I'm using my name because I'm trustworthy. And I'll fulfill what I promised to Abraham. Well, what was the purpose of an oath? What was the purpose of it? Well, it meant that you were going to fulfill what you said you were going to do. We're very familiar in our society today 
If somebody is inducted into a particular political office, they might take an oath of office to uphold the Constitution, so help me God. When a person gives testimony in court, they're required to promise under oath that what they say will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. So under our laws, to lie under oath is to commit a grave crime, a felony, a perjury, punishable by time in jail. So I want to ask you this. How about the vows that you make? The promises that you say that you're going to follow through on? Do you have integrity? How reliable is your word? Those of you that are much older can remember a time in American life when your word was your bond. Business transactions were conducted on a simple handshake. Folks went out of their way to deliver what was promised, but I'm telling you, those days seem to be long gone. Today, agreements are made to be broken. You look in the sports world of coaches and business executives, they'll sign a contract, but then that contract becomes null and void when they find something better. Politicians uh, actually uh, go ahead and massage the facts not to give an accurate picture, but to advance the narrative that will serve their own purpose. People are concerned for the truth only as long as it helps them. I love what Daniel Webster wrote. He said, there is nothing as powerful as truth and often nothing as strange. Honest people are becoming an extinct creature. They're a vanishing breed. Not long ago, there were some some disturbing statistics that were posted in a particular magazine. The article said these words, 50% of people polled said that if audited by the IRS, they would owe money. 33% admitted to deceiving a friend. 26% would pocket the difference if a clerk would give them too much change. 19% cut in line at grocery stores. 93% violate the speed limit. 89% said scratching the paint on your car next to yours in the parking lot and driving away without leaving a note was dishonest. Yet 52% said that's exactly what they do. 68% said cheating on their spouse was wrong, yet 42% said that they do it if the right opportunity presented itself. I'm telling you, as you read these statistics, here we are in this modern world. Truth has really gone to the wayside. Today, it's all about deception and half-truths and exaggerations and flattery, and all of that rules the day. Say whatever you need to say to get yourself ahead. That's how most folks look at it. Yet I want to tell you something. According to Jesus' words, that's not the way we ought to live. You and I ought not to navigate our lives that way. Jesus has a better way for us to live and to relate to one another. In this sermon, Jesus was wrapping up here this idea of trustworthiness and honesty and truthfulness that it should characterize a follower of Jesus Christ. I love this little story I read about a woman who was looking forward to a wonderful morning on the beach and she got her chair and she put it down and she plopped in and put her glasses on and was just enjoying when this little boy came up to her and he said, ma'am, are you a Christian? The lady said, yes. 
He asked again, do you go to church? She responded, as a matter of fact, I do every Sunday. So then he asked a third question. He said, do you read your Bible and pray every day? Now she's looking at the boy and wondering, what are all these spiritual questions for? I'm just looking for a day at the beach. The boy looked at her and he finally said, well, ma'am, he said, will you hold my money for me while I go swimming? You see, the little boy had the right assumption. This lady said that she was a Christian, went to church all the time, and that she probably was going to be an honest person. That's the way it really should be. You and I should be known as people who value our word. What we say, we should mean what we say. I love this verse, Proverbs 22.1. A good name is, rather to be, is chose, to be chosen rather than great riches. Powerful. Well, Jesus introduces this idea of oaths, but now he talks about the confusion on oaths. It's quite interesting to see what the Jews would do in verses 34 to 36 in not swearing by the Lord God and possibly taking their name and God's name in vain. See, they were concerned about swearing by God and taking his name in vain because they didn't want to forsake or disobey the third commandment. So here's what they do. They made up this whole little system of other things that they would swear by. In other words, it wasn't God himself they'd swear by, but they'd swear by heaven. Or they'd swear by earth, with which was God's footstool. Or they might say they'd swear by their head. And all of these things were like little loopholes. Do you understand the word loopholes? This was like when I was a kid, if somebody wanted me to promise something, I would cross my fingers. And when they said, well, you said you were going to do it, I said, uh-uh, I had my fingers crossed. That's the way the Pharisees were working. The Pharisees were coming and saying, well, well, wait a minute now, I don't have to fulfill that particular oath because I wasn't swearing by God, I was swearing just by the earth. Or I was swearing by this, or I was swearing by that. All of this complicated this idea of taking an oath, and the Pharisees developed this system to determine which oaths were binding and which oaths were not binding. Again, they believed that if they weren't using the name of the Lord, then their oath didn't have to be binding at all, creating these loopholes. But again, I love what Jesus does. He makes a correction. Notice the correction about the oaths in verse number 37. He says, but let your communication, notice this, be yea, yea, nay, nay. In other words, if you say, yes, I'm going to do something, follow through with it. If you say, no, I'm not going to do something, then you're not held to it. Let your yes be yes, if you will, and your no be no. Jesus is correcting this type of action. Don't play games to deceive people with your words. Let your words plainly speak for themselves. For those of you that are old enough to remember 1998, when a particular president was famous for his careful definition of the word is. He used his own private definition with the intent to deceive, but with the demeanor that he was really telling the truth. Sad. Jesus really is coming through and saying, 
say what you mean. And I'll tell you, when you look at the end of verse number 37, notice this. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Jesus attributes attempts to use deceitful speech to the evil one, Satan, who John 8.44 said is a liar. And you're of your father the devil. In fact, what Jesus is alluding to here is that... When we use language to deceive, we're following the devil, not the Lord Jesus Christ. So two things here with regards to promises kept. Marriage and our word. Two broad subjects. Now when it comes to marriage and divorce, as I conclude here today... As reading through this scripture, it does sound complicated sometimes. And to a certain degree, there is a certain complication. I wouldn't say I have a corner in the market. And I would say here today that you might read these portions of scripture and compare with other scriptures. And you might say, well, preacher, I I come to a different conclusion than you do on certain. And I, I get all that. You read through the commentaries and you read through the different preachers that have written on this subject. And I'm telling you, there's a multitude of views when it comes to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But I want to tell you something here today. Sin complicates what God has designed in its simplicity. I read this little statement and I thought it was so good I included it in my notes. Marriage is always the work of God, whereas divorce is always the work of man. Powerful. The big idea of this passage of Scripture that I want you to walk away uh, with is this, is that divorce and remarriage is a disruption of God's ideal of what He's established. Divorce is a terrible tragedy. There's a high cost. Cost financially, cost personally, it costs spiritually. It destroys God's plan for the family. Divorce has lasting effects, as many of you are aware, that cannot be changed. But praise God. God's a God that heals. God's a God that reaches out. God's a God that says, Oops, I'm sorry, you've made that little sinful error and you're no longer able to be used. I'm thankful in the church that I was 20 years plus as associate pastor and in this church here today that there have been many divorced people who are serving the Lord with vigor and with enthusiasm and with excitement and realize that they've had some tragedies in the past, but they've sought God's forgiveness and God has forgiven them and they moved on and they're serving the Lord for His glory and His benefit. And it's a privilege for me to be around such people. I don't feel worthy really to be around. But God does bring about a wonderful healing. And I want you to be reminded that God is a God of reconciliation. I didn't go into much of this here today in talking about this aspect of adultery as far as what is committed and various other things. And that's for another time and when we have more time to deal with it. But I want to tell you something, that God can forgive any sin. There's no sin that is unforgivable. There's no sin outside of not believing in Jesus and relying upon the Holy Spirit. That is the unpardonable sin. Repent. And realize your sin and go out like Jesus told that young lady, go and sin no more. 
But let me apply this aspect of the oaths. Could I say here today for our church family, we need to be plain spoken people. Mean what you say, say what you mean. And really a good test of your credibility starts at home. Daddy, it starts with how you make promises with your children. I remember when I first started the ministry down at Benita Springs at Gospel Baptist, and one of my duties was to oversee the youth group, and so I had made a particular promise, and truthfully, I forgot all about the promise. And I found some of those teenagers were a little bothered, and there was something in a difference of our relationship and when I finally figured out, I heard one of them say to me, but, but Pastor John, you promised that you'd do this. And I thought, wow, kids holding on to this. And so I did the best that I could to remedy the situation. And we renewed our relationship together. But I'll tell you, kids listen. They don't listen to things you want them to listen to, but they sure listen on other areas. So when you make promises to your children, fulfill the promises. There was a day, many of you that are married right now, today, there was a day when you stood in a church or someplace and you said your vows to that mate of yours. Uphold those vows. You probably said some of the same vows that I did, that we would be with each other through better or worse. And I've told my wife on a number of times, this is some of the worst, baby. But I'm with you, and I hope you're with me. Uphold your vows to your spouse. Uphold your vows to your church. You've come into a church, if you're a member here, to uphold the doctrine of this church, to uphold the services of this church, to uphold the meetings and the things that go on here. And I want to encourage you to stand by your word with this particular church. You say, well, how do I get there? I've been so accustomed in this society to just kind of just flippantly saying things, and I don't really mean what I say. I want to tell you, if you want to be a man of your word, first thing you need to do is saturate your mind with truth. You say, where do I find the truth? Go to the Word of God. Saturate your mind with the Scriptures. You see, the old saying is really true. The best way to be aware of lies is to be so familiar with the truth that you recognize the lie when it comes immediately. One of the reasons it's so important to saturate your mind with truth is because the first person that we often lie to is ourselves. Oh, we're good at lying to ourselves. We tell ourselves, well, I'm not as bad as that other person over there on the other side of the church. See that person over there? I'm not as bad as them. And we lie to ourselves. But I want to tell you, we're just as separated from God as the next person. We lie to ourselves by telling ourselves that we're not hurting anybody by saying what we do uh, to others. Yet we know that there have been words that have been spoken to us that have hurt us deeply. We lie to ourselves by telling ourselves this particular lie. Well, I didn't mean it. How many times have we said something or done something and we said, well, I did, when we realized that it did some damage, well, I, I didn't mean that. No, that's, that's, that's really a fabrication here. That's a lie. Most of the time we said exactly what we meant. 
And when it didn't turn out and we try to bail ourselves out, we go ahead and use some type of lie. We lie to ourselves by telling ourselves, well, it's not my problem. I'm not the one that's at fault. But I'm telling you, many of the times we are sharing the blame in certain things. And if you read the Bible and saturate your mind with the Scriptures, that Word of God has a way of cutting through the lies that we tell ourselves. God tells us the truth and then offers us the help and the power to build a change. So number one, saturate your mind with the truth. Number two, always tell the truth. You know, if you go ahead and try to constantly twist the truth to suit your own purposes or to cover your actions, then you're going to constantly have to work hard to really consciously tell the truth. You know, lying may get you out of a little bit of trouble for the immediate point, but it is not the way for a child of God to act. And then I want to say, thirdly, if you want to be a person that begins telling the truth, don't assume socially accepted ways of deception. In other words, quit exaggerating. You know who some of the greatest exaggerators are? Preachers. They'll look through a room right away. Also, know that, oh, well, hey, we had 500 people today. That's why I have people actually specifically count because I want. I don't want to go just eyeball this thing. But we, as people, will exaggerate in certain things. We'll exaggerate things for ourselves. How sad it is. And it's important that we follow through in these promises. Promises in our marriage. Promises with our words. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for the word of God. I ask that you would just help us, Lord, here today. Guide us in these few moments. Give us, Lord, the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives.